Good evening. Welcome to Night Time. I'm Dave Wager from the Relate 365 Leadership Team, your host for the next half hour. We're hoping that God will use this time to help you unwind from the business of this day and begin to prepare for tomorrow. Often, when we start the process of going to sleep, we can take a moment to reflect on the day and see how we responded to the various people and situations we encountered. Hopefully, you're able to live and not just endure this day. Each night as we start our time together, I want to remind you of some critical thoughts that so often get lost in the plethora of stimuli we seem immersed in. God is a God of love, and He loves you. And He has a plan, and you can be in His plan if you want to be. If you had trouble finding God today, it was because you did not truly seek Him. If for some reason you're angry, disappointed, or choosing to disobey God, you don't know Him. If you've downloaded the past episodes from Relate365.com, you know we've been going through a book I wrote called Beyond the Deception, Learning to Defend the Truth. Book is a rather loose term for it, I guess. It's really more of a how-to guide or a guided devotional. In that I give 21 days of thoughts, basically through Jude and Second Peter, and really try and discuss what it is that false teachers have in common so that we can identify them and move away from them toward the teachers that are speaking the truth in love. The format of the book is the same for the various books that I've written to help guide like this. There's a verse, and then I actually have my journal entry talking about whatever the verse or verses were to try and help people understand how you can look at a passage and ask questions about it. Then there's two blank pages for you to take your own notes. And I can't stress enough the value of spending quiet time, just alone time with God and recording your thoughts. At the beginning of each chapter, I have a statement that summarizes what we'll be talking about. And the statement for thought 16 is there is no such thing as a secret life. 2 Peter 2.14 They commit adultery with their eyes and their desire for sin is never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin and they are well trained in greed. They live under God's curse. 2 Peter 2.14 Peter continues to talk about characteristics of false teachers and deceivers. He tells us that they are not necessarily the ones who are overtly committing sexual depraved acts, but they are committing adultery with their eyes and never really seem to be satisfied with the sin they so enjoy. Pornography is a primary example of sin that has gripped our nation. 
There are millions of child porn sites, all illegal but available to anyone who has a computer and a connection to the internet. Clothing styles for women are often designated to grab men's attention. Television programs, advertising, and continual onslaught of spam emails underscore the importance of the sexual and the erotic. This problem is not new in her culture, or in any culture. But it is a major problem among those who want to be leaders, for they continue to dabble in a supposedly private world, satisfying their lustful eyes while hoping and praying that God will bless their ministry. Satan knows the tremendous temptation that the lust of the eyes present to the leader, and he will do whatever is necessary to keep reminding us of what is available out there. Therefore, we must agree with God that we are subject to such temptations and be deliberate about setting up environments so that the temptation cannot overcome us. The problem will never be entirely solved because too many people are involved in the problem. From the time our daughters are young, they look forward to wearing clothes that make men notice them. They cannot wait for the time they can dress up, make men drool, have dad tell them how beautiful they are, and head to the dance floor and move to the music in ways that scream, look at me, look at my body, look at how I move. Moms seem to take great pride in this, and dads love the fact that their daughters are so beautiful. Men, in the privacy of their offices, enjoy a little pornography now and then, and take their wives or girlfriends to movies full of sex and violence. The appetite for sexual pleasure starts with the eyes. So all this visual stimulation is headed in a specific and dangerous direction. The deception comes when we think that we can handle these live coals and not get burnt. The deception comes when Christian girls want to be like the others, the godless girls, who live to have men desire their bodies. We do not want our Christian daughters not to fit in or to be strange, so we encourage them to be safe and participate without causing such lusting to take place. We ask them to hold live coals to their bosom and neck and burnt. Our country has a drinking problem, but we will not deal with it because we like to drink. We have an obesity problem, but we will not deal with it because we like to eat and we don't like to exercise. We have a sexual problem, but we will not deal with it because we like to satisfy our sexual fantasies. What is it you're not dealing with and why? I think that's a valid question. There's many individuals who think that their private life is private, yet when you read the Bible, you realize that there's nothing really private going on.
you realize that in all of life, we haven't had a private moment, a private thought. What's really kind of amazing is that God still loves us. Even though we've dragged our lives through the gutters and we have had hateful, envious, braggadocious thoughts, thoughts that focus on us and how the world should revolve around us, and yet the real creator and sustainer of all life loves us. the end of every thought, I have a piece of a truth puzzle that I add, and the truth puzzle piece for this one is I have never had a private moment. I think if I live in that context, I will live correctly. Realizing that every word that I say will someday be acknowledged that my idle chatter I will be held accountable for. The interesting thing is, it's not God folding his arms up in heaven waiting for me to say or think or do something wrong. That's not in his character. He really wants me to do something right. I've often thought that it's not unusual to find somebody doing something they shouldn't do. Rather, it's unusual to find them doing what they should. The more we understand of the grace of God, the more that grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world. The thought for day 17, a summary thought at the top, says something will control me today. 2 Peter 2.19 They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. Second Peter 2.19 From the New Living Translation I am a slave to whatever controls me. What is it that controls me? What should control me? I could be very pious and claim that God controls me. In reality, though, I'm often controlled by my appetites. My appetite for power or pleasure or food or acquaintance. Appetites can be so powerful that they lead all that you do and bring you to all sorts of evil. A few years ago, I was told that I had a heart attack. After talking with the cardiologist, I agreed to modify my diet. I was not modifying my diet because my appetites had changed. I was modifying my diet because I needed to, or I would risk another heart attack. The trouble with this diet, as well as other diets, is that it restricted some foods that I found very desirable. 
some of the foods that I used to eat in abundance, I now needed to limit or totally eliminate from my regular diet. In the beginning, I found that eating the right foods was difficult, but I remained on track because I believed this was what the doctor wanted me to do and he knew what he was talking about. And I was afraid of having another heart attack. I've now been on this restricted diet for years. I've lost about 40 pounds, feel great, exercise regularly, and can honestly say that I have little to no desire for the foods that once so captivated me. In fact, I have now a whole new set of appetites that include foods that help heal and protect my cardiovascular system. How did I get to this point? First and foremost, I had a crisis, a heart attack. Second, I knew that in the crisis there was one who knew the best route to both repair and prevent. Third, I adjusted my environment so that the foods on the acceptable list were the foods that were available. I see the same thing happening in my spiritual life. Before I can really begin to develop habits that will heal and protect, I need to admit that I have a problem, a problem with sin. Then I need to go to the one who can help me cure this problem, the one who really knows, the one who's an expert on sinlessness. From there, I need to arrange my environment so that it's conducive to producing the end result that I desire. This means that there are some things that need to go, some things I will no longer buy, some things that I may never touch, see, or listen to again. As I go through this process, I begin to feel a new spiritual freedom. I'm no longer controlled by my passions and desires. I'm controlled by a deliberate decision to surround myself with the things that will promote spiritual health. Just as in the physical world, what starts as an act of obedience soon becomes a habit of a successful life. What environment changes do you need to make? Or will you wait for the crisis to make those changes? You know, it's so easy to be considered a legalist to look at somebody who has a conviction about something and say, oh, don't force your way upon me. It doesn't make you any better. You could die by getting hit by a truck rather than a cardiovascular problem. I want to live my life. I want to enjoy the moment. You know, when we start living for the moment, we start missing out on the eternity. The moment is a vapor, as the Bible says. It, it's here for a moment, but it leaves and it dissipates and we can't find it anymore. To live our lives for that kind of thing is not healthy. 
the piece of the truth puzzle for this chapter is this. Something will control me today. I can choose to be controlled by the temporal or by the eternal. So often, if you've followed anything I've written, I end it with, for now, for today, the choice is mine. See, there comes a time where we no longer can make choices. At least as far as I know, we can't. The day God calls my name and I leave this planet, I will stand before him. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I need to understand that as I live my routine today. The 18th thought out of 21 says this at the beginning. I need to think about what I could be, not what I cannot be. You know, it's so easy for us to focus on the problems of life. We forget what we can do as far as solutions. Second Peter 2.20-22 in the New Living Translation says, and when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it, and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit. And another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. 2 Peter 2.20-22 How bad is it to have success within your grasp and let it go? God has not saved us just to keep us from hell. He has saved us unto good works. These good works are not a condition for our salvation, but they are a condition for a successful life. God, the creator, the designer, the lover of man, has given us all the instructions we need to live a godly life. If we choose to ignore what he says, what hope do we have? When I was young, I was on a high school swim team. I was not much of a swimmer at first, but due to some physical limitations, swimming was the only sport in which I could participate. I thought it would be easy because my brother, who was older than I, was a star swimmer. I was sure that great swimming ability was in the genes, and I attacked the sport with all the gusto of a new recruit. During my first meet, I remember swimming a 100-yard sprint. This meant we had to swim four lengths of the pool. I was nervous, but I glanced at my coach and at my brother, took my place on the blocks, and took off with the gun. Well, that was my last pleasant thought during that race. All my competition was done with the race and out of the pool before I was finished with my third lap. As I took my breaths, I saw people in the stands pointing and laughing. I felt humiliated, defeated, and worthless. 
Then all of a sudden, my brother and my coach got in between my view of the jeerers and became my cheerers. I finished the race and was consoled by these two men. From that day on, I dedicated myself to not letting those two down. I practiced, swam, did whatever it took to win, and win I did. My second year was an unbelievable success. These two men forced me to see what I could be. They got between me and the crowd and forced me to deal with the defeat, but in a way that propelled me toward being my best. I did not want to go back to being that loser again. When I became a believer, God stepped in between me and the world. He made sure that I understood where I currently was, but always showed me where I could be. Why would I ever want to go back to where I'd been? How bad would it be for me to go back to the level of that first performance after four years of competitive training and swimming? It would be the ultimate agony of defeat. Do you understand what you could be? Could you ever be satisfied again with where you once were? I think that's a valid question for all of us. Do we focus on the limitations that we have in life or do we focus on what God can do through those limitations? You know, I think that there are people listening that have been trying to please God all their life with their ability and it's not your ability that pleases God. It's your faith, your trust in Him. My ability, my life is one that is sinful like everybody else's. And because of that sin, I've been separated from God and separated from the life I could have. When I realized this and I come to God and I put my trust in Jesus Christ who died for me on the cross, I begin a whole new life. I'm in a whole new family. I begin to live and think differently. Why would I want to go back and live like I didn't know God? Why would I want to go back and live in a way that didn't reflect who He is? Why would I live wanting to be like those who don't know Him? I think we have a tremendous problem in our culture in that we have immersed ourselves in what is so normal to those who don't know God and we're trying to normalize a godless life among the godly. This is a tremendous danger. In our world today, it seems as though popularity is extremely important. 
And if you lose at a sport, you can't be that popular because you're one of the losers. So what we've done is we've invented ways to make everybody a winner so that they don't feel bad about losing. The day I lost that first race in swimming was an important day for me. It wasn't important because I lost. It was important because I lost and there were two men that saw to it that they helped me through the loss. They didn't minimize the fact that I lost. In fact, our coach had a rule that when you swam, no matter how far behind you were, you were to finish your race. And in a sprint of four laps, when you're a lap and a half or more behind, it's evident to everybody in the arena. There's nowhere to hide. You know that they're looking at you and thinking, what a loser, even though they say something else. Those who were honest when I got out of the pool were not hiding the fact that I did not have a very good time. You could be encouraging in the fact that you can tell me it was my first race and that things will get better, and certainly they will. But you also needed to be honest with your affirmation, and they were. Swimming was something I had just started. I had never swam competitively before. There's no possible way that the very first time you ever swim competitively that you'll be an Olympic star. I don't remember exactly what they told me, but I remember there were no excuses. I lost the race, and I lost it by a substantial amount. But I would need to be at practice the next day. And we would begin to work on a solution, little by little, until I could get to the point where I could compete with those around me. I never got to an Olympic level of swimming, but I was rather successful the next three years. Successful enough to have been recruited to swim in college and recruited to play football, and I chose to play football because football was just frankly easier to do than swimming. But the life lessons I learned in swimming will always stay with me. Life lessons that were well worth learning. I could have focused on why I lost. I could have focused on my disastrous time and think I could never make that up. Or I could focus on what I needed to do to just get better the next time I go out. And have an honest assessment of what I could do. I've said before that the same swimming coach once was talking to me about playing football and swimming because my football coach wanted me to stop swimming and focus on football, which might have been a good idea. I don't really know. 
But my swimming coach was honest with me. He looked at me and frankly said, Dave, you're not going to be a professional athlete at either one of these sports. I would enjoy both of them and many other sports so that you're well-rounded. I know that doesn't sound like politically correct information, and it probably isn't, but it was truthful. Believe it or not, I've taken one of those genetic tests and it came back showing me that I do not have the normal genetic makeup that a lot of the professional athletes have. And the first time I read that, I thought of this coach and what he told me. It wasn't shocking news to me or anything because I have known some professional athletes and they were so good at what they did naturally that I wasn't even in their category. I understood that. But I swam for four years in high school and did okay. I went to play college football and eventually hockey. I'm thankful for an honest opinion and advice and focusing on what I could do rather than what I couldn't. I guess the challenge is there for you as well. Thanks for spending some time with me today. This is Dave Wager, coming to you from Relate365.com with studios on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute and silverbirchranch.org. I hope to talk with you soon.